Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Vangura. On the show, I talk all about my experiences in music theory. I'm currently a music theory PhD student at the University of Michigan. I also have experience in opera performance, so I talk a lot about performance as well. We have guests who do all kinds of things in music, from music performance to education, composition, production, always looking to expand the conversation about what music is and what it can be. Today on the podcast, it is the episode you've all been waiting for. We have Dr. Philip Yule on the podcast today. Dr. Yule is a full professor of music theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York. I first got introduced to Dr. Yule when we worked together at the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Uh, This was last year in May, so I, I did a residency with him. It was a great experience. I'll put a link to a blog post about that experience in the show notes. We also have discussed his landmark article, Music Theory and the White Racial Frame, on this podcast before, back in 2021, with Dr. William Hussey. You can go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more about his work. Today on the show, we talk all about his background in music as a cellist, how he got into music theory, his time studying music theory at Yale, and the investment that we both share in public music theory. We also talk about some current things that he's reading and working on, including the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones and The Baptism of Early Virginia by Rebecca Ann Getz. These texts have so much to teach us about music theory, about the future of our field, about what anti-racist work in music theory can actually look like. And we talk a little bit about Dr. Yule's new book that's coming out soon called On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone. It is available for pre-order now. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm so excited (laughs) to welcome Dr. Phil Yule on the podcast today. How are you, Phil? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Lydia. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, I normally start off each episode with a guest talking about how we got introduced. And, you know, of course, I had heard of your, you know, legendary article and plenary talk (laughs) at SMT. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting kind of looking back on when I was finishing up my master's at Roosevelt and decided, you know, that I was going to go into music theory and enroll at the University of Michigan for my PhD, you know, I had some professors that were like, okay, so before you start, you got to know who Phil Yule is. (laughs) You got to read this article. You got to get familiar. um, Because, you know, I've, I've kind of talked a bit on the podcast about how, you know, I was feeling so, um, so boxed in and beaten down by my experiences in opera, especially Mm -hmm. in a really white program at Roosevelt. And so, you know, I was experiencing so much hostility from some of my professors in particular, as well as some of my colleagues. And it was just becoming um, really unbearable for me. And my thought was like, wow, I feel like it'll be so nice to leave opera mm-hmm. for a moment and kind of recover from from these traumatic experiences that I had and go into the welcoming arms of music theory. Oh yes, <laughs> the multicultural rainbow coalition of music theory. <laughs> That's great. Lydia. Yes, which is when my professors were like, "You have to read this article." 
like, let's not just send oh, her goodness. out into the, you know, into the yeah, wild. Into the wild. <laughs> well, you're still you're still here and I'm I'm sure you're flourishing. So well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, another thing that I want to mention is I remember the summer of 2021, I think it was, when I first came across your blog posts. So I will link Mm -hmm. those in the show notes for the listeners so that you can check it out. And I remember being so inspired by seeing those blog posts because it's it's such interesting and relevant scholarship, but it's stuff that you just put out on the internet yourself. You didn't have to wait to go through a journal. You didn't have to go through the peer review process, but it was still stuff that I was so excited to read and to cite and, you know, still really interesting, relevant work. And so that was a big reason why I ended up starting Her Music Academia, actually, is because I was like, you know what? If Phil Yule can do it, I just want to have a place where I post my term papers and get my ideas Mm -hmm. out there and begin to foster conversations myself that I don't see happening organically in music theory. So I also really want to thank you for that. Oh, Lydia, thank you. And it's extremely important because um, I wrote those six blog posts um, early in goodness, 2020, I think. And I realized that it would be impossible for any of those ideas to make it into a music theory journal. They just get weeded out. The, the process of gatekeeping, of course, as it's, as, as it's generally known, is just too intense. There's no way it would have all been beaten down, you know, put through a ringer and just come out the other end, this kind of watered down anodyne nonsense, frankly. And I just thought to myself, well, you know what? Number one, I have tenure. And number two, I have a computer <laughs> and, uh, and the internet. And uh, I just said, you know what, this is stuff that I want to get out there. And I just have to do it. I have to get it out of my head because it's clouding my head. It's it's kind of messing me up in my brain. And um, I figured, you know, okay, maybe 80 people might log on and I'd see some analytics at like, oh, wow, 20 people read this article. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really, I haven't checked for a while, but I would say probably 200,000 views. Wow. Um, would be would be about where it is right now. Mm. Um, and so obviously it's it's that um, Nicole Hannah-Jones said in her preface to 1619 that what provoked such ire uh, among, well, conservative folks in the United States and frankly, white America, is that she had breached the wall between academia and the public consciousness of, yeah. of what uh, a Black experience actually is. And she had done so in a in a newspaper of record, they had given her a platform. Mm-hmm. And so what prov- what provoked ire in my case was more or less exactly the same thing with my plenary talk in 2019, right? I had breached the wall between our rarefied understanding of what music theory is on the one hand and the public consciousness thereof on the other. And that is extremely unnerving to the power structures of music theory because they can see their power dissipating and going away, they can see their privileges melting under their eyes. And um, it's just something that they are are extremely uh, unnerved by. And and of course, vociferously can lash out against that if, if they see uh, their power slipping away. Absolutely. Well, again, I just want to thank you for your work and for your blog posts and for helping to, as you're saying, bridge 
music theory as it lives and breathes in the academy and the public consciousness around music and music theory and what it can be, you know, it, it mm-hmm. again, was just really inspiring to me and, and something that I really hope that this podcast is doing as far as bringing I, general... I think it is. Yay, listeners! It is, Lydia. No, absolutely. <laughs> no question. I'm, I'm aware of your podcast. I've listened to it before. It's great. And this kind of public scholarship that you're doing is so important. Of course, it's frowned upon uh, by those same moderate mm. and conservative forces in the academy. They sometimes will call it anti-intellectual. Mm. And anti-intellectual is just a, a euphemism for anti-white, by mm. the way. Um, and they, you know, call it what you want. Uh, it's not, <laughs> just for the record, it's not anti-intellectual and it's not anti-white. It's simply getting the word out about some ideas that can't get out because of the uh, intense uh, white and male structures of of the academic study of music in general and music theory specifically. Mm-hmm. And because of the barriers of academia, like going back to what you were saying about the analytics of your blog posts and, you know, how many people would have actually come across it if it was in a journal versus... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just being public on the internet for anybody to find, you know, it's a huge mm-hmm. resource that, you know, I don't take for granted. Um, so yes, thank you again. Um, let's get started and jump right in. Uh mm-hmm. Let's start with your early experiences in music. So as far as when you started playing music, singing, writing music, anything like that, and kind of the musical influences that were happening in your home uh, while you were growing up. Oh, yeah, great. Thanks, Lydia. Great question. Um, So I've written a little bit about this, uh, about my father and his love for classical music and um, how he was a mid 20th century black intellectual who was trying to assimilate. So in his defense, he uh, thought that, you know, listening to classical music, driving a Mercedes he couldn't afford, being part of this intelligentsia could kind of get him out of the horrors and the violence and the murder um, of of the Black experience in the early 20th century. Mm. Um, If he were alive today, I would say, Dad, it was never going to happen. I mean, you'll never be accepted. You have too much melanin. Mm-hmm. in your skin and too many naps in your hair. It just that's just not the way white supremacy works. Uh, of course, he his love of Mozart and Bach and Brahms, he would have never linked to whiteness. And that, of course, is one of the basic tenets of white supremacy. Don't say white. That's not what it's about. To be clear, that's exactly what it was about about 100 and 150 and 200 years ago. That's what everybody said. Whiteness is superior. It should be superior. It should be in power because of X, Y, and Z, right? Just lots of, of nonsensical, frankly, uh, rules and policies that that our country has enacted over over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that is uh, that changed in the mid twentieth century when you could no longer say white people are superior, white people are are supreme. You had to kind of hide it, and and so you know, starting in in let's call it the fifties, maybe Brown Brown v. Board of Education fifty four was a big landmark uh, decision that really kind of started to change the public consciousness of race in our country. And uh, you could no longer just explicitly say white people were supreme. And so that's what my dad was thinking also in the the mid mid to late 20th century. It's just exceptional. It's just great, right? Beethoven is just great. He's a master composer Mm. and the best composer. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't even get scrutinized by the public conscious. Why should it? It's already been determined. He died in 1827. The, the jury's the jury has decided. Yeah. Um, and without ever really speaking about the processes by which Beethoven became the greatest composer 
on the planet. So at any rate, um, my dad was very much hook, line, and sinker into the the Western narrative of the Greeks and the greatness of the Greeks all the way through to the Germans. He was extremely keen on German art and literature and culture. He he claimed to speak fluent German. He he didn't have fluent German. I know that for a fact. But uh, my dad was a mathematician, so. Uh, as such, he was a self-proclaimed genius, mm. as most mathematicians are. <laughs> uh, on the other side, my my Norwegian white mother was uh, much less, um, how can I say, she came to this country in 1959, and uh, I owe it to her that, that I have the anti-racist and anti-sexist beliefs that I do today. In other words, she was a much better anti-racist and anti-sexist than my Black father was, without question. And um, it's interesting. I've never really commented on this on this before, specifically anywhere. But I think to myself, when my mom came over in 1959, she didn't have all of the racial baggage of an American because she just wasn't. She was Norwegian. Uh, she did get a green card when she married my dad in October of 1960, but she never became a U.S. citizen. And without that baggage, she just kind of said and looked around just like, y'all are crazy when it comes to this race shit. What is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And it just didn't even occur to her how it's just like, this is insane. You all are people are being absolutely insane about this, you know. And so so, so she really was a, a, a huge force in the background of my life. I mean, both my parents were, of course. But at any rate, to, to, to just finish the, the I'll kind of speed up here. Uh, my dad was very keen on classical music, and I started playing the cello when I was nine, probably because of his influence, and I uh, kept playing. And, you know, ultimately, in college, I played more and more Russian music. I loved the Rus Russian music, um, and I ended up studying cello in Russia uh, as a graduate student. And um, so Russia also has been a pretty large influence on my life. I ended up marrying a Russian in Moscow in 2002. Um my wife Marina and and both she and my son are actually dual citizens, uh, U.S. and and Russian. That's a whole different rabbit hole that we don't need to go down right now necessarily <laughs> because of the war in Ukraine. But at any rate, uh, Russia and and um, and Russian music is where I ended up spending most of my time as a music theorist. Mm. Right. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you go to was it Yale for your PhD? I did. Yes, 2001 is when I finished. Yeah. Okay. And how was your time there? Uh, the, uh, it was fun. It was really fun. Some of my best friends in my life I met at Yale, the grad students there. Um, I studied with Alan Fort. Mm. Um, I should just say that there, and I, I mentioned this in a in a uh, talk I had with Dwight Andrews recently, um, that because he was at Yale too, about 10 years before me, and how we had to kind of wall off our love of Black music from our studies at Yale, there was a very concrete, there was a concrete barrier between right. our love, our love of black music and what we were doing at Yale. You, you could never have mixed those two things. I mean, that's just not what it was because that cuts against the racial order of our country, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the whiteness and the maleness of the Yale graduate program in the 90s in music theory was intense. Mm. It was extremely well-defined and the hierarchies were just monumental. I mean, I, I I don't even have words to express just how indebted uh, graduate study at Yale was was to this mythological whiteness and maleness that started with Pythagoras and Aristoxenus about 2,500 years ago, and then came up 
to people like Alan Fort and Milton Babbitt in the late 20th century. I mean, it was it, it was something you, you could never question, obviously. Mm. And uh, you simply had to either agree with it or leave. And even if you agreed with it, if you if you were not a white cisgender man, you began to have problems. Right. I, I speak of blackness as a demerit in the world of music theory. I'm sure we've talked about that too, Lydia, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I didn't use the word demerit. We've certainly talked about it, but I I think it's a good way of thinking about it. If you're black, that's a big demerit yeah. in a music theory framework. If you're a woman, that's a demerit too. You put those two things together for you, Lydia, you're a black woman. It's not like you have two demerits. They start to compound. It's kind of exponentially. It's more like you have four demerits, yeah. which is why we have virtually no black women in music theory. Mm-hmm. It is a travesty. It is wrong. It always was wrong. And it is because of those demerits that we have in the system that we are not successful. We we don't get accepted. We get dismissed mm-hmm. out of hand and we are denigrated. And ultimately um, the system kind of spits us back out mm-hmm. unless we are, ext- we have extremely thick skin right. and, and, and can withstand the, um, the denigration and the the hostility, frankly. Yeah. Um, and that's just a, a something that has to change. When you try to explain this to white people, um, it, it it's confounding. They can't understand how it could be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet here we are. <laughs> I, I still, I do my best to, to try to explain these things. So yeah, Yale, Yale was, it, it was both. It was both one of the best things that's ever happened to me and one of the worst. Mm. Um, I ha- I did have problems. There was absolutely anti-Blackness. Obviously, I wouldn't mention any names, but, um, you know, I, I failed some of my qualifying exams. My dissertation was was denied the first time I tried to pass it through. So wow. mu- much of that had to do with anti-Blackness. Not all, but but much of it did, in fact, have to do with that. As hard as it would be for colleagues at Yale and some of the folks involved as hard as it would be to hear that and and I'm I'm sure many people would just try to deny that that was true but then we just agree to disagree and move on (laughs) right yeah yeah thank you for sharing I mean I was actually this morning racking my brain because right now I'm getting together our guests for women's history month for the podcast brilliant and I was racking my brain about you know uh some some black music PhDs uh, from Michigan, some Michigan alum that I could ask. And I kept racking my brain like, am I missing somebody? Am I? And I'm searching around and I'm like, listeners, let me know if I'm missing anybody. Is the last black person to graduate with a music PhD from Michigan? Because I know that Dwight Andrews went here, but for his undergrad, Clifton went here also for his undergrad. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think of like black music PhDs who graduated from the University of Michigan, I feel like the last one might have been Dr. Kira Gaunt, which was mm-hmm. in the 90s or early 2000s. Uh, Probably, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. in ethnomusicology. So right. I'm, and I'm also trying to think, is there is there a black PhD in theory specifically? I don't, not that I, I don't know so. of. I'm like, not me being the first one. This is so annoying. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so, Lydia. But um, my my go to guy for all for that information is Horace Maxwell. So oh, sure. just throwing throwing that out there, Horace, if you're listening, big shout out. Get to on you. the pod, Hi. Horace, please. Get on the pod, Horace. <laughs> Horace is great. He would probably know, but I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say I would be stunned if there were a black PhD mm. in music theory at Michigan. Michigan's a pretty conservative program. Yeah. Uh, historically, and um, 
I just would be stunned. I, I don't mean to call out Michigan here. That's mo most programs right. uh, that, that have a great music theory tradition yeah. uh, in, in the country. Michigan's not exceptional here. It's it's actually it's just quite the norm. Right. Um, yeah. So it's it, it's just very, very difficult because of those demerits. Right. Yeah. It's to a music theorist, to a music theory brain. It's like it's just kind of you can't wrap your head around black music theoretical ideas being worthy of attention it, right. it it just doesn't make any sense to to music theory writ large mm -hmm. of course that's it's awful it's a it's a sad history it, it impoverishes us all lydia mm. including white music theorists themselves which is hard to understand but it's just greatly impoverishing and uh, we need to move beyond it yeah well i would love to know um you know following our our line of discussion um considering your your time at Yale and your varied experiences, um, if you had to give a piece of advice um, to grad students, to Black music PhDs in particular, about um, the best way that they can navigate, you know, um, anti-Blackness in their program, what would you say? Well, a piece of advice, that's a good one. Um, I think Maybe the first thing I would say is just make sure you have people you can band together with with students and friends, peers who are there with you. Mm. And, and those peers could they could be black, but they could absolutely be of any other race as well, because generally speaking, younger folks like you, uh, grad students and even going back to undergrads and even high school students. I've, I've had several high school students interview me, which has been great. It's, I take it as a point of pride that I said something I did something that a high school student is interested in. Um, making sure you have a good network of friends that you can just decompress with, go and yeah. have drinks, go and hang out and just watch a movie or something and be like, bah, and you can just talk, get the anti-blackness the, the, the anti that you're taking in during the day, whether it's like a microaggression or a macroaggression, and then get it out of your body, mm. right? Like just say, bah, to something. Now, granted, it's difficult for white people to understand anti-blackness the way that you and I do. It just is. Um, but you can still try to, you know, there, there'll be sympathetic ears at the bar, I, I guarantee you. And um, and just having a good network of people is, is probably the first bit of advice mm -hmm. that I would say. If there's another bit piece of advice, it's um, you probably to keep your head down um, as you're going through the ranks. In other words, um, you know, how could I say it? Don't try to don't try to stir th too much up with the with the power structures as you're making your way through because they they have the power and they can swat you down and, and get you to, you know, get you out of the program. It can be aggressive. It can be mean. It could be criminal, frankly, mm -hmm. at times. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, so you have to be. But I mean, I'm telling this if you're saying this, what would you say to a black person? I'm preaching to the choir. Black people are like, yeah, we already know that, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tell like, me let me just I don't do know. my comps and keep it pushing. Like, I don't Exactly. Care. Exactly. You know, it's not like they don't know that already. Mm -hmm. may, may, so maybe, Lydia, frankly, I'm speaking to the non-Black listener at this point and just trying to explain how wrong and unjust and frankly horrible it can be at times when you're so denigrated and dismissed simply because of how you wear your hair or something mm. it could be something that that simple and that uh, inoffensive and sometimes it can actually be offensive in a white framework 
And um, it's something that that we people of color have to uh, deal with every day, especially in white spaces. But if I could end a little bit on in that point on a on a silver lining, there's obviously a great beauty to our blackness, um, something that I wouldn't in a million years ever give up mm -hmm. because it's given me insights and perspectives that I could not possibly have had otherwise. And I hope that I can help other people by sharing some of these perspectives. So what's interesting about this is when I asked you to come on the podcast and I was like, you can pick any topic. It just has to be musical in nature. And you said, I want to talk about the 1619 project. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I mean, I got Phil, so I'm not going to argue. But how is he going <laughs> to? I don't really know what he has planned. So, you know, you, you requested to talk about the 1619 Project and also this this other text that I hadn't been familiar with, which is the Baptism of Early Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm interested in why you're interested in these texts. Yeah, so th that's a, a great, great question. Um, so, you know, as you're setting, as we we were setting this up, you know, you had mentioned something that you're doing and yes, related to music, um, you know, just current that you, the, you know, what, you, what your brain is working on now. Mm -hmm. And I immediately think of the books that I'm making my way through the articles um, so that I can craft arguments to move the needle in music theory in a good direction. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, rule number one, don't read music theory. <laughs> I mean, I can't put it any blunt, more blunt than that. Just get up. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Rule number one, because that's the that's the echo chamber of whiteness and maleness. Mm -hmm. uh, it just is, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you go back even more than, say, 10 years in time. Um, it really is just a serious echo chamber of whiteness, and maleness. And even when whiteness and maleness music theory tries to go beyond you know, Tonnets and and and, uh, and Schenker and Pitch Glass or whatever, um, you know, form studies, we um, we still, there's there's still a massive amount of whiteness and maleness that's applied. Yeah. Think of all the pop music study techniques that are there. It's, you know, started exclusively with white men, right, in the late 20th century, pop music studies. Scholars like Mark Spicer and Walt Everett and Alan Moore and, and John Kovach. Uh, friends, hi everybody. <laughs> I'm not trying. I'm not trying to put you, put you down. I'm just saying that it had to be white men to introduce the Beatles. Of course, it all started with the Beatles. Mm. They're, by the way, being canonized the same way that Bach and Beethoven are. Sure. And and that's a bad thing. I'm just saying. <laughs> not to say that their music was bad. No, I kind of like some of the Beatles songs. To say that the canonization is very yes. very bad. Beatles supremacy um, is. Mm. Beatles supremacy exactly. <laughs> it's it's nonsense. It's it's just pure nonsense. Mm. Um, but what I would say is that if you if you kind of are in that echo chamber, it's very hard to actually see th see things for what they are mm. to see things clearly. So um, I have made it. Um, one of my main um, interests to bring in work that is outside of music theory that's less biased about the way things were and are in music. And you can do that by studying history. I find myself reading 
legal rulings, court rulings, mm. uh, documents written by lawyers. I have two on my on my laptop here. Maybe I put them away somewhere. But one is about the indignities of colorblindness by an author named uh, Body, uh, a woman, B-O-D-D-I-E, I think, uh, that I just, you know, picked up. I can't even remember exactly where I got it. Another um, another great article that I'm about to read is about the case of Elizabeth Key, uh, Elizabeth Key Grinnell, um, Grinstad. But if you just look up Elizabeth Key, you can find it. This is a 1656 court ruling in in the Virginia House of Burgesses uh, that is very relevant to the to the Dobbs decision, actually, that just happened, uh, taking away a woman's right to reproductive health. Mm. Uh, I, I won't even go into any more detail about that. Maybe I've whetted the appetite of some listeners. But those are great, uh, you know, going down the historical rabbit hole of why things are the way they are in terms of race can answer a lot of questions with respect to why things are the way they are in race, in music theory today, right. in 2023. They really can. So um, it, maybe I could like look at just, uh, I, I, I pulled out a quote from from each of the two books you mentioned, yes, and I have please. a third book I'm going to bring up. So, mm-hmm. um, and I should cite here Brock Baylor, uh, who teaches philosophy at uh, University of Pittsburgh, who contacted me on a Zoom, he actually asked a question in a Zoom, and then we had some follow-up. So thanks, Brock. Brock is a white man <laughs> um, who recommended the baptism of early Virginia to me by Rebecca Ann Gertz, who is a white woman, teaches at NYU. Um, This is the baptism of early Virginia, how Christianity created race. And this is a quote on page uh, six. At the beginning of the century, English people did not think of themselves as white. Anglo-Virginians created whiteness during the 17th century and redefined Christianity as a religion of white people. Anglo-Virginians codified the the heritability of Christianity and of heathenism, but daily interactions remained fluid. With their words and deeds, Anglo-Virginians gradually created a world where whiteness and Christianity were bound to freedom, political power, and the potential for wealth. Mm. So all the way back in the 17th century, um, this this brilliant uh, book. I think she, she, in the preface, she mentioned that she, sh- she started the work in a grad seminar at Harvard. I think that's where her PhD is from. Um, about how uh, this concept she has of hereditary heathenism and how crea- Christianity played into the creation of race uh, so that we could, Anglo uh, settlers, right, planters uh, could divide very clearly um, Black people who were enslaved and indigenous people, obviously, with the white people who had come over. And in other words, you were born into heathenism and you couldn't be Christ- Christian because if you linked Christianity to freedom, well, then a black person could convert to Christianity and claim to be free. Mm. And that was something that they were very much against. So Tanahasi Coates says it best when he said, let's not forget race is the child of racism, not its father. Mm. Uh, it, it, it wasn't race that came first. Right. It was racism. Right. And then people with power said, oh my God, we can use this if we simply define it further. And, uh, and, and voila, there it is. You've got the white race, mm-hmm. uh, you know, roughly, you know, people had thought about the, the term white for races, uh, in the 17th century. And I, I, I couldn't say when, when it was first used in Europe because it would have started in Europe. So either, you know, blanc or vice, uh, in French or German, Blanco or something. 
that could have easily happened in the 16th and possibly in the 15th century, but not before that. Mm. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump now to the 18th, 19th century, and I'm and just read a quote from the 1619 project. Um, this is on page 22. And this uh, makes reference to the 1857 Dred Scott decision. Uh, he was a, a enslaved in Missouri, a slave state, and he, his master uh, took him to Illinois for quite some time. And Illinois was a free state, right? And um, upon return to Missouri, he said he sued and, and was able to get a court hearing saying, I was free in Illinois and I can't be re-enslaved in Missouri. And ultimately in 1857, in a seven to two decision, the Supreme Court ruled once and for all, so they thought, <laughs> and they call the black race the slave race, mm. very much like the hereditary heathenism that uh, Rebecca Hangertz wrote about. And so the this is the quote about the slave race. This belief that black people were not merely enslaved, but a slave race is the root of the endemic racism we cannot purge from this nation to this day. If black people could not ever be citizens, if they were a caste apart from all other humans, then they did not require the rights bestowed by the constitution. And the we in the we the people was not a lie. Mm. So that that's a fascinating quote. Now, of course, it took only four years for the civil war to start. So it, they, they didn't solve that problem. Right. Very much the same way that Sam, Samuel Alito and company did not solve the problem <laughs> of a woman's right to choose a woman's right to choose they actually began uh something no i'm not advocating for civil war on your pod let's just be clear <laughs> <laughs> i'm simply saying that that decision the dobbs decision is the beginning right. of this issue it's not the end mm -hmm. um, just like dred scott was the beginning of the end of slavery mm -hmm. actually so you, it's it's easy to see uh, how and why blacks were so denigrated and why they were just a cast apart. And many Americans do know this story. So one of the things that's um, very silly, if you ask me, that people will say when when you talk about history the way that I just have is that was then. This is now. Things are better. We don't have slavery anymore. So get over it. Don't think about it. Um, that's great if you want to keep your power and not be challenged. Yep. But guess what? I'm not going to let that happen. Not on my watch. Mm -hmm. uh, I will continue to challenge these structures until the day I am dead and buried. Um, so let me give you one more since I'm kind of connecting dots historically. Let me jump up to 1932 in a book by uh, a German American. So a white man, German American theologian. His name was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, he died in 1971. The book is from 1932 and it's called Moral Man and Immoral Society. Um, and Reinhold, so uh, let me just start with the quote. Uh, he writes, this is on page 253. However large the number of individual white men who do and who will identify themselves completely with the Negro cause, the white race in America will not admit the Negro to equal rights if it is not forced to do so. Mm. Up, upon that point, one may speak with a dogmatism, which all history justifies. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I'm so for the people who say that was then, this is now. 
it's sometimes useful to connect dots throughout the decades and centuries and just say, these are the patterns. Mm -hmm. They are indisputable. You just can't say that things like this don't happen now. Uh, power structures lynch black bodies. I, I want to say even daily, but maybe not daily. Um, let's say weekly. I could think I can comfortably say that. Of course, Tyree Nichols was just the most most recent. Um, what's the word? Um, you know, high profile mm -hmm. um, such lynching, but it happens. I'd say weekly yeah. to this day. So um, to anyone who say who says that things things like this don't happen anymore, I'm you know. I, Frankly, I don't really want to have a conversation with that person because they're just not thinking straight. Mm -hmm. uh, in music theory, we don't have many people who are, who are in just full-blown denialism. We do have some, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I find that in academic music, there are people who will, who will at least listen, certainly listen to these arguments that I'm making now and, and understand that these things still do play out in music, right? right? So um, I think the, the takeaway here uh, from the three quotes that I've given you um, two of which were from white people, I hasten to add, some of the, my most uh, favorite uh, race scholars are in fact white people who do such great work in anti-racist work in, in making us understand things like like Joe Fagan uh, on whose uh, work I based my, my, my 20, 2019 plenary. Mm -hmm. um, I think the takeaway here is go outside of the, ac the academic study of music, bring in data, and show people how things are actually playing out. If we say, you know, if if we had made the point that we made 15 minutes ago that there are basically no black women in music theory mm. in the United States. I mean, almost zero. Jewel Thompson, 1982, was probably the first uh, PhD mm -hmm. Eastman School of Music. It was on her the her dissertation was on Samuel Coleridge Taylor, probably the first music theory dissertation on a black composer. Yeah. Teresa Reed. Teresa Reed yeah. uh, Teresa Reed, um, about 20 years ago, I think she finished from Indiana University. Mm -hmm. uh, you, um, Black, I, I mean, it really is like maybe on one hand. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm missing anybody. <laughs> Horace, help me out here and send me an email. Um, but if you say that to music theory power structures, uh, what would they, how would they respond? Okay, I, I know I'm going to tell you how they would respond official music theory power structures would say it's really unfortunate there, that there haven't been more black women it would be so great if there were mm -hmm. but one sometimes they weren't allowed to be educated two we in music theory are probably not doing enough to reach out and and market ourselves better so that we can bring in more black women and if there's a three it would it might just be Again, they wouldn't want to say something like we create hostile environments for black women and that's not and that's why they're not here. They're not going to just be so blunt, right. but they might give you a little centimeter and say something like and maybe maybe that there's something about music theory that doesn't draw in black women to music theory. Mm. OK, now I'll give you the filial answer. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's basically nonsense, right. right? It's basically nonsense. The way that official music theory would explain the fact that there are no black women in music theory is nonsense. Just like it's unfortunate. Oops. Like yeah, it's unfortunate. That's right. Um, the the actual reason is obviously 
anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. Okay, two words, anti-black racism. That's the reason we don't have black women. Of course, we can add misogyny mm -hmm. in there as well. That's obvious because we're talking about black women. Mm -hmm. Now, the only thing that really is uh, that that we that remains is for us to understand the anti-black racism that drives, that has driven our field for decades, ever since it was conceived, if you believe the 1960 version of, of what uh, people say that, uh, you know, Milton Bowden and Alan Ford roughly in the 1960s were starting these quote unquote scientific explorations. Mm. Okay, if, if that's your beginning in music theory, fine. Uh, let's just go back to 1960. But, uh, until we can unpack the anti-blackness that that is foundational to American music theory in the same way that white supremacy is foundational to American music theory. It's not like in the 19th century when the New York Philharmonic was formed in 1842, they were like, oh, we should let in all kinds of different people because everybody can play these instruments. Oh, guess what? 100% of, of the New York Phil is all white men. Oh, well, I guess those are just the 100 best instrumentalists mm -hmm. and there were none. In 1842, Dred Scott had not even been decided. It took another, what, 15, 16 years mm. it, to, for 1857 for the Supreme Court of the United States to literally say that the slave race um, could never possibly even be citizens. Mm. How on earth is the New York Philharmonic going to hire a black person? It took them 120 years, by the way, to hire their first black person, Sanford Allen violin, in 1962. So um, it, until music theory can look at itself in the mirror and say to itself, we're anti-black, and then take a big deep breath and say to itself, you know what? We're anti-woman. And guess what? We're anti-Asian. We're anti-Islam. We have all of these things in part, not exclusively. American music theory is not only those things of course not but in part it is those things why because it's american mm. it's not it's not rocket science and and we shouldn't you know if something happened in the 19th and 20th centuries i'm not blaming anybody mm. i'm saying that we should all all of us black white and all others take some responsibility for the state of affairs in our field, the fact that there are virtually no black women, for example, mm. and be honest with ourselves as to the reasons why that is so. The lack of honesty is what I call out. And here I would, would I'm here I'm channeling what I call my anti-racist killjoy. And of course I get that from Sarah Ahmed and her concept of the feminist killjoy. Yep. Because so often music theory I cannot tell you how many times that music theory in its self-congratulatory shtick will talk about how uh, diverse the music theory conferences has be have become. Mm. Oh, it's so great. We've solved all the problems. I just saw a panel on Prince. Okay. <laughs> Deep breath. <laughs> Deep breath. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. Mm. And that is 100% a diversion. Not to say that there's anything wrong with a panel on Prince. There is if all the people presenting are white, frankly, mm. especially if all the people are white men, which is often the case at a music theory conference. Right. You're talking about Prince, you got five white men up there talking about Prince. Yep. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna go to the panel. Fine, do it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not 
appropriate. Yeah. It's not appropriate. It actually does more harm than good. I want to see music theory look at the undergraduate core curriculum. I want to see sure. us uh, examine the AP high school music theory. Yep. Let's talk about that. Yep. All right. No prints there. No way. Mm -hmm. You're not going to talk about prints there. You're going to talk about Bach and Beethoven and voice leading and harmony and counterpoint, right? Right. To prepare students for the real stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The 20 composers who we have been told are all that matter. The 20 composers uh, and of course, here I'm talking about Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, Chopin, you know, uh, uh, 20, yeah. who who represent, I often say, less than 0.1% of the world's music. Yep. And yet we have we have been told that this is music. It's not it's not white male music theory from Germany and maybe France and Italy. It's music theory for the planet. Yep. It's the school of music. Yep. <laughs> it's the school of music. Yep. Right. And that, that less than 0.1% of the world's music is all the music. It's 100%. Yep. It's not even 99%. So now people are having conversations about how and why that was wrong. I'm happy to be part of those conversations, but um, I'm not going to let music theory off the hook just because there was a panel on Prince at a conference. Mm. No, that's, that, it doesn't happen that way. Yep. Uh, again, not on my watch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, something that's that's coming to mind, you bringing in, you know, scholarship from outside of, of music. It's really bringing to mind, like, what the future of music theory is going to have to look like, if it is going to, you know, continue moving the needle right towards um, anti-racism, it's going to look more and more multidisciplinary, right? Because there are yeah. other parts of academia and other areas outside of the academy entirely that are actually engaged in real lived anti-racist work and scholarship and we're just so far behind like every other like field in the humanities really so like if we have a, a fighting chance of of music theory actually moving forward in some meaningful and concrete and lasting way it really is going to be with the help of this amazing scholarship that's coming from outside of of music academia it's uh i was having a, a conversation i'm in a book club with a friend of the show anna rose nelson go back and listen to her episode on modernist music it's great um and we were having a conversation in our book club about ad carson who was at the theorizing african-american music conference uh this mm -hmm. summer and uh, I remember mentioning him to her like, oh, yeah, and he did this really interesting like rap dissertation, da, da, da. And she was like, OK, what did he study? Because I know that he did not get a music PhD. There's no way <laughs> that a university would grant someone a music PhD for doing something like a rap dissertation, which is entirely true, right? It is. It is true. Mm -hmm. But his and his his dissertation is not in music. It's like communications and rhetoric. Right. Right. right? Uh, but but he is currently a professor of hip hop in the musicology department at University of Virginia. Oh, good. OK. So e even though the music department at Clemson, where his Ph.D. is from, almost certainly would not have been interested in such a such a dissertation. He does have a job as a, as a musicology professor, which is great. And it's actually a, 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 an excellent uh, model, frankly, mm -hmm. for how how we can begin to rethink how we think of music because you know he he didn't have the whole western upbringing he's a professor of hip-hop right yeah. he's got a studio at uva and uh you know they're making beats and doing all uh, people who are studying music undergrad degrees and good for them that's exactly right we need more of those uh, programs because you know we still have this 
very bizarre notion that in order to get a music undergraduate degree, you have to have been doing, you know, piano or violin or one of the quote unquote classical instruments um, since you were, you know, six, seven, eight years old and had to have all those lessons and have to, of course, know five line staff notation, grand staff mm-hmm. and all your keys and key signatures and stuff like Which that. Which is so classes. We're assuming that people had the money to afford those things. And so there's already exactly. that element there. Well, it's classes and it's also, uh, you know, it's part of a, what, what uh, you know, what we would call simply a racist and sexist structure, yeah. right? In the sense that there are a lot of other great music theories and a lot of other outstanding instruments um, that are just, in, you know, experienced in different ways. And they're more or less shut out of mainstream uh, music uh, majors and music academia in, 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 in our country. And any one of those, I mean, if you play the oud at a very high level. Right you should be able to get a music degree mm-hmm. and you could teach a lot of interesting musical concepts and music theoretical concepts yep. to faculty today, to a piano faculty, for example, or a violin faculty or a music theory faculty. And you should be allowed to do that because we are not as we thought we were, and many people still think we are, a a quote unquote white and Christian nation, a patriarchy. I mean, obviously we have tens of millions of Americans who very much want exactly that mm-hmm. Christian nationalists, white nationalists, and, you know, people banning the usage of the word white or black in state legislatures. Mm. It's, it's actually quite remarkable right. to watch you know, anti CRT and they don't even know what CRT stands for. Right. <laughs> Listeners, as we're recording this, we're in the wake of, you know, a slew of, Black literature being banned in Florida uh, in mm-hmm. in uh, public schools. So, you know, we're really seeing in real time the pushback against the way scholarship is moving towards this multidisciplinary, um, mm-hmm. you know, way of, of doing scholarship, of thinking through ideas and then moving towards, you know, an anti-racist ethic. So, right. yeah. You know, I heard Ta-Nehisi Coates recently on a pod and he was asked about you know, what he thinks about this crazy backlash, mm-hmm. um, Florida, Texas, and and just state legislatures. I mean, I think 40 state legislatures have something on the books or wending it straight through, through the process, like, which is basically anti-CRT. But, right. you know, you're banning something that you really, you, literally a lot of people who say the words, uh, say the initialism CRT don't know what even it stands for, let alone one of the tenants or authors of of what actually happened at Harvard Law School in about 1980 with Derek Bell and his students, yeah, uh, which is which is of course what critical race theory actually is. Um, but uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates was talking about um, this backlash, and he was asked what he thought about it, and he said, "You know what? I think I'm really excited by it." And I'm like, "Oh wow, that's a that's interesting." Why was he excited? He was excited because this is what happens when progress is being made. People, you know, the the conservative uh, forces, they lash out. They kind of it's it's totally disgusting and, and unseemly mm. the way that, you know, the Ron DeSantis of, of the country are lashing out. But it means that progress is being made and the struggle is real and people are actually waking up to the the, the real struggle. Right. Mm. And it does seem like people, uh, progressive folks on the left are are have losses. And that's true. I mean, the uh, the anti-transgender uh, stuff that's going on is maybe the most egregious and just sick and vile 
that we've seen in the history of the country. Well, look, pick your poison. I mean, there's a lot of bad moments in our country when 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 speaking about how power structures in the United States have treated its citizens, right? But the anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ, and anti-trans stuff that is is just very, very aggressive right now yeah. on in state legislatures that don't say gay kind of stuff in in Florida again. Uh, but I really latched on to Ta-Nehisi Coates talking about his excitement about this because I can kind of feel it in music too, right? Mm. I I've given up kind of my walking that line and and trying to just oh maybe I can't say this because white people are going to get mad at me. Obviously, I speak very bluntly and openly. And I'm done, as I say, coddling whiteness. And I should say that there are many, 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 many white folks in music theory who thank me for that profusely because they're like, you have opened up the door. I've thought many people have said this, Phil, you've opened the door for us white folks to just talk about this honestly because we couldn't even do it. And now you've kind of opened the floodgate and thank you for that. I cannot tell you how many uh, white colleagues and friends have have said that to me. So Mm -hmm. shout out to, 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 to them. Um, but the excitement in music, to finish the point, is also palpable, and uh, and I, I, it's just kind of exhilarating to see curricula being rewritten right before our very eyes, yeah. and to see see the violinists and the pianists and the music theorists and the composers, basically, kind of senior ranking uh, white men, usually or white people, maybe you know, lash out and say, how dare you say that our students shouldn't be able to realize a figured base? How dare you, Mm. you know, suggest that our students shouldn't have piano proficiency and be able to play, you know, a a Czerny etude? How dare you suggest that Beethoven was just a human being? And you're like, "Uh, excuse me, but I'm pretty sure he was. I only like Edmond Overture, and that's it, to be honest. (laughs) That's my Beethoven hot take, is he peaked there, but, you know. (laughs) Well, he was a crappy opera composer, that's Mm. for sure. (laughs) But I I must say, I kind of like his his chamber music quite a bit, so, you know, I do have a soft spot for Beethoven's music there. But um, at any rate, it's fascinating to watch. I have people sending me, I get, I get, um, fished all the time by right-wing trolls every day Mm. something's coming in um and i have people who are dedicated to try to bring me down uh several in england england is pretty bad some in austria and germany many people in the states obviously and canada i would say um and i get fishing stuff all the time somebody just sent me something yesterday like oh here's a harmonization i can't quite understand it professor totally anonymous obviously and i'm like oh you want me to like do a test harmonization, do you? To, to, and then you're going to try to say, oh, he went from the median to the submediate and he should have gone to the subdominant or something. I mean, seriously, <laughs> it's that silly. But um, I just block people and uh, and and occasionally I can even get a, get a, get a laugh from it. Like one guy on Twitter a couple of years ago, he's like, Dr. Ewell, I don't follow you on Twitter. Please explain to me how a D, D dominant harmony can be racist. <laughs> now, I didn't respond, yeah. of course, mm. because I obviously have, have never said anything like that. That's just silly fishing, right? right. The, D, the D dominant seventh is not a racist chord. Now, the C sharp half diminished seventh, that's a racist chord. <laughs> and, and don't get me started on the German augmented oh sixth, my goodness. <laughs> So you see, that's that's how you take that's how you take uh, take lemons and then <laughs> cut them in half, squeeze them, and then 
that, that ring them in your in your uh, in your uh, opponent's eyes, basically, <laughs> by by getting a laugh from the from their ridiculousness. And also, thank you to that to that white man <laughs> who sent who sent me that because I could just block his Twitter and never hear from him again and get a gag out of the uh, the silly tweet that he sent. So tell us about your book that's coming out. I'm so excited. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Lydia. Yeah, I guess I should make one shameless plug here for <laughs> for my for my book. Uh, it's called On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone. So um, it's a little autobiographical. It's got uh, a lot of uh, stuff about uh, unpacking the mythologies of what we do in, in music theory, unpacking the mythologies of the West and yeah. the Western canon and and how that's created problems and and what I generally say is hostile environments for certain groups of people. Um, there's a chapter, I've expanded the chapter on Heinrich Schenker and his legacy that appeared in that article that I wrote. I have an, uh, an, a chapter unpacking volume 12 of the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, which I think is very crucial mm -hmm. to kind of have that um, for posterity's sake. It's kind of my testimony there for that. I have a chapter just generally on music theory's anti-blackness, mm. which we've talked a little bit about today. I've, I have a chapter on confronting classical music's anti-Semitism. Mm. I, I often say that there are far more points of convergence between classical music's anti-Semitism and its anti-blackness than there are points of divergence. Right. And uh, you can really learn a lot about our, our anti-blackness and anti-Semitism. Let's not, <laughs> let's be clear that happens today Mm -hmm. um, from looking historically at the anti-Semitism in the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, because it was rampant. It was rampant. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, I mean, I lived in, in Russia for seven years. So uh, I sometimes say that the Russians, they, they wrote the book when it comes to anti-Semitism, both figuratively and literally, because the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a Russian language document published by the Tsar's secret police, probably uh, anonymously in, in about 1903. Mm -hmm. So um, I learned a lot. I already, you know, knew how to spot anti-Semitism before I was in Russia, but uh, that's my seven years there gave me a lot of insights there. Um, and then I finish, of course, with trying to, you know, give some ideas and some recommendations for the future of music theory to try to, in fact, make it more welcoming for everyone. So yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. It's University of Michigan Press, and it's part of the Music and Social Justice series that uh, Will Chang and Andrew Del Antonio edit and everybody at Michigan and Will and Andrew have been outstanding and thank you to everyone at University of Michigan Press for being so great. Go Blue, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Yule for being on the show. It's always so fun to chat with him. It's been great working with him. Right now, we are actually working on a series for SMT Pod. SMT Pod is the official podcast for the Society of Music Theory. I'm on the editorial board for this podcast, and we are going to be putting out several episodes covering the Theorizing African American Music Conference that happened in June of 2022. Phil helped co-convene the conference, so it heavily features Phil as well as Chris Jenkins, interviews with the keynote speakers, with the musicians who performed, with the scholars who presented and attended, and you get to hear a little bit of my voice too, so you're not going to want to miss it. Make sure you subscribe to SMT Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you pre-order Phil's book, forthcoming through the University of Michigan Press. 
If you have any feedback for me, any questions about the show, if you want to suggest a topic for the show, anything I should read or listen to, if you want to suggest a guest for the show, or you want to be a guest on the show yourself, please let me know. Send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com or go to my website and fill out the contact form there, hermusicacademia.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.